The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Blank screen, but it's going to be the general outline that we'll be following that we'll be following this morning or this afternoon. My uh, aim is simply to encourage each of us to think on our new identity in Christ, to think who we now are in Christ, and to show how this is altogether different from who we were outside of Christ. What's the fundamental difference that exists between who you were as one dead in trespasses and sin and one having been made alive in Christ? And we'll also explore the significance of this difference as well. So, first we'll be looking at uh, the relationship of pre-fall creation to the Creator. What was it that defined this relationship? There's not much in terms of uh, clear teaching from Scripture to discuss this point, and I've wrestled with uh, how important this is and if it's necessary to include it. There's a word of warning here when we are speaking to something that the Bible doesn't clearly speak to. We have to take great care to consider the principles that are laid out clearly in Scripture and to be sure that we're operating within the boundaries of these principles. We cannot violate a clear truth that's spoken to in Scripture in our attempt to um, answer whatever question we're trying to answer. We understand that God is infinite and we are finite. There's much about God that we don't understand because He hasn't told us or He has told us and we are too limited in our understanding right now to understand it. Um, in our strivings to know God um, and to better understand Him, and this new life that we have in Christ, we are bound to have questions that aren't clearly um, spoken to or understood. So in these things, we don't want to be dogmatic, and I won't be dogmatic here. I'll be presenting this that I've become persuaded of. My goal is to glorify God and to encourage you to see Him as even greater and more glorious than perhaps you do right now. But I want to also encourage us to think critically here, be engaged, be an active listener. I think it's beneficial to the overall lesson to include these musings on the pre-fall condition of creation. And with that said, we'll move to the uh, second point of the lesson. In this portion, we'll be discussing the outcome of the fall, both the fall that occurred in the angelic realm as well as the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. In comparison to the defining attribute of pre-fall creation, what changed as a result of the rebellion? What is the new defining attribute of the creation toward the Creator? Next, in comparison to spiritual death, what is the attribute that defines spiritual life? At the very core of the creation, the one who is alive to God, what is that active attribute that now gives life and drives men to a deepening faith and a growing reverential fear of God? From here, we'll move into a discussion of the source or the origin of this life-giving attribute. I've tried to stay kind of ambiguous to perhaps pique interest, but I'm certain that everyone knows what we'll be talking about here, and I'm so certain that I'll go ahead and give it away at the end here. It is, to close out, we'll be talking about um, our identity and the defining attribute of the one who is alive in Christ. So obviously it's Christ who is the source of our spiritual life. Okay, so think about how God created all the things that he created. Think on the angelic realm. Think on the earth. Think on the solar system, the universe. Think on mankind. 
God created all of these things that we see in this verse of Colossians. All things in the heavens and on the earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. We're speaking specifically to Jesus as the creating agent. Paul hits everything. Everything is either visible or invisible. But then he goes into some clarifying detail to make sure that the reader understands that we're talking about every single thing. Every conceivable thing was created through him and for him. And John says the same thing. Nothing exists that has come into being apart from him. And I want to focus for a minute on this word translated apart from. The manner in which Jesus created is being described here. Nothing. No thing was created in a way that would be described as being apart from him or independent from him. And we can flip it around and say that everything that exists has come into being in a manner that was completely dependent upon him. So we see clearly from Scripture that all of creation, the angelic realm, the earth, uh, everything on the earth, including mankind and the entire universe, every single thing was dependent upon God in order to come into being, and nothing that has come into being came into being independently from Him. And we have Scripture like Hebrews 1, verse 3, which says that Jesus is actively and continually upholding all things, the whole of creation. The verb... For upholds is a present tense participle. It's a verb that functions grammatically as an adjective. It's a describing identifier. Jesus is described as the one who is always upholding all of creation. And in the book of Job, God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, and for about four chapters, he lays out for Job all that he has done in creation, but also how he sustains creation. He is the one who commands the dawn. He is over the rain and the drops of dew. He sends forth lightning. He provides prey for the lion to eat. He, provide, he prepares nourishment for the raven when it's young, cry out to God for food. He oversees the deer giving birth. He brings the ox into submission to serve man. He gives the horse its might. He commands the hawk to soar and to make its nest on high. And this goes on. God is telling Job that he is intimately involved in the sustaining of creation. Creation did not come into being independently, and it does not now exist independently from him. <coughs> creation is dependent upon God. Without God's provision, the lion doesn't eat, and none of the rest of this would happen either. This is the defining attribute of creation. Creation is dependent upon the creator. It is God who sustains the creation and graciously provides for his creation all things that pertain to life. He upholds it and he is, uh, and it is in Christ that all things hold together. We can, we can tend to take things for granted and lose sight of this. When we take our next breath, it's God who graciously has given that to you. And that next heartbeat is because he's ordained that that would be. And if that doesn't happen, or when that doesn't happen, it's because God ordained that as well. God is actively involved in every aspect of the creation. There is no part of creation that is independent from the Creator. If God stopped actively sustaining and upholding the creation, then the creation would cease. And this is a major point. The creation is dependent upon the Creator. No part of creation is independent from God. All things pertaining to life come from Him. And I don't think this is a controversial point. More, uh, perhaps more controversial will be to ask the question, has this always been the case? 
Here's a quote from a book written by Andrew Murray uh, that got me thinking down this road. And I'll, I'll read it as you read it. Uh, God desired to reveal himself in and through his creatures by communicating to them as much of his own goodness and glory as they were capable of receiving. But this communication was not meant to give created beings something that they could possess in themselves, having full charge and access apart from him. Rather, God, as the ever-living, ever-present, ever-acting one, who upholds all things by the word of his power and in whom all things exist, meant that that relationship of his creatures to himself would be one of unceasing and absolute dependence. So let me explain this quote a little. God created in such a way that what was created was created to depend on God for all things pertaining to life. And when I say life, I'm referencing all that pertains to bearing the image of God in the demonstration of his character and his divine goodness to the promotion of his glory. Demonstrating these communicated attributes of God that both image him and glorify him. Let me ask a few questions. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. And why did God make you in all things? For his glory, for his own glory. God created all things for his own glory, to, uh, to fill creation with his own image and to be glorified in and through creation. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. These attributes that image God accurately are attributes of the light. God is light and there is no light apart from or independent from him. For this reason, I'm persuaded that for the creature to remain in this fellowship with God, the fellowship of light, it requires that God actively supplies all of these things pertaining to life to the creature. The creature is completely dependent upon the creator for these things that pertain to life, that we would need, that we would um, image him rightly, that we would glorify him in creation. Even before the fall, I'm persuaded that even in the absence of sin prior to the fall, the defining attribute of the creature to the creator was to be utterly dependent upon him for all things necessary to image him and to glorify him. As I speak to you about this today, I am persuaded that this complete and utter dependence upon God for all things pertaining to life, fellowship with God which glorifies him, define the relationship of the pre-fall creature to the creator. Granted, scripture doesn't speak to this directly, so no matter where we land on this, it's based on a synthesis of ideas and principles and presuppositions. But I have a hard time imagining that there could ever be any spiritual life that was ever self-sustaining or independent of God, who is the author and the source of all life. In this created state, there is a knowledge and an understanding that God is all, and all good and perfect things come from him. There is a constant fellowship with God as the creature goes to God and receives from him all things necessary pertaining to life. All those things that rightly image God in and among creation. There's no thought in the mind of the creature to try to obtain anything independently of the goodness and the grace of God. The common understanding of creation, specifically angels and humanity, is that they were created perfect, which I would agree with. But in order for them to actually be perfect, 
the assumption is that they must have an ability or a power to be in fellowship with God independently from him without his active sustaining grace at work in the, uh, to keep the creature in this fellowship with him. An immutable characteristic of God, an unchanging characteristic of God is that he is almighty and he is all powerful. There is no might or power apart from him. So again, I have a hard time imagining the creation having this ability for a continued right relationship or fellowship with him apart from him continually supplying it according to his grace. We know that in the history of creation there have been two big rebellions. The first one that we read about in scripture in Genesis chapter 3 is not the first one that took place. The first of these rebellions took place in heaven among the, heaven, uh, among the angelic host. We have a beautiful guardian cherub created by God who has always existed with God in perfect fellowship and communion since the day he was created. He was blameless in his ways. The one that we now know of as Satan and the devil was created beautiful and blameless in the eyes of God. There was a moment, however, in which unrighteousness was found in him. What was the ultimate source of this unrighteousness. What's that? Yeah, pride. His heart was lofty. We see this in Ezekiel 28, verse 17. We see in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, that um, he said in his heart that he would ascend to a throne above the stars of God and make the heights of the clouds and above the heights of the clouds and that he would make himself like the Most High God. And let's hang on to that for later. He said, I will make myself like the Most High. So what is this attribute of spiritual death that killed Satan and all the angels that fell with him? This one thing led to his being cast down to the ground. This sealed his ultimate destruction. There is a place of eternal torment that was created for Satan and for the demons because of this unrighteousness, this killer of right relationship and fellowship and life as has already been said, is pride. The creation, as we've discussed, was created to depend on God for all things pertaining to life, and Satan and the demons looked outside of God's gracious provision to find something outside of what God had supplied for life. They went looking outside of God's grace for provision, and what they found in the rebellion was death. If you were doing a survey and asking folks on the street why God created all that has been made. We can imagine for a minute what the answers might be. I would imagine we'd get a lot of different answers, and I'm not confident that we would ever hear the right one. Without having done this, I would imagine that a popular answer to this would, be, would involve something having to do with creating something resembling what we see described in the eternal state, a place where there are no tears, no death, no pain, no suffering, no discord, a place of complete harmony between God and man. If this is our presupposition that we bring into Scripture, it will have an adverse effect on how we read the Scriptures. If we begin at this starting point, we are forced to conclude that the fall of Satan and the demons, as well as the fall in the Garden of Eden, represent some thwarting of God's mission in creating. Then we hear things like, if only Adam and Eve would not have sinned, we would still all be living in the Garden of Eden in this perfect state of communion with God without any of the negative aspects of life in a fallen world. But this was not God's plan in creation. And how can we know that? It's because that's not what happened. 
If God had been pleased to have a creation in which no prideful rebellion of the creation took place, then it would have been that way. Clearly, the rebellion of Satan and the demons play a role in the plan of God in creation because it occurred. God was graciously sustaining him in this relationship with himself until unrighteousness was found in him, and he was raised up in his pride against God. And Satan rebelled, and a third of the angels did with him. Now in the garden, we have Adam and Eve. Adam being made from the dust of the ground, and Eve formed from the rib of Adam. God gave them all things in the garden to enjoy. They were depending on him for all things pertaining to life. But he put a tree in the middle of the garden that they were not to eat from. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only tree that they were not permitted to eat from. The serpent then tempts Eve as she eventually eats from this tree, and then Adam eats from it as well. And what was it that Satan tempted Eve with? You'll be like God. He tempted her to the same pride that killed him and the demons. It was a temptation to be like God. Pride killed Satan and the demons, and this same pride, Satan's pride, killed humanity as well. The result of this was that they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, and then they hid from God. What happened in this moment is that pride, the pride that kills, now reigns within uh, mankind, and humility is impossible for mankind. Being spiritually dead, it's impossible to act in dependence on God for life. All man can do in this fallen state is assert his own independence from God, and without humility, there can be no fellowship with God. It's pride that kills creation. God created all things to depend on him completely and for all things, uh, for all things pertaining to life, a life of imaging God and glorifying him. And when they act independently of God and the power of their own unaided creaturely wisdom and efforts, it's prideful rebellion against God. It's sin, and the wages of sin is death. So that brings us to the... Uh, end of the second point along our um, path for the, for the time. And uh, we've got, so we've discussed that the creation was designed in such a way so as to depend utterly and completely upon the grace of God for all things pertaining to life. I do, I do not believe, I don't um, see, I can't imagine a situation where God created them to, to function or to be independent of his grace and his sustaining in their life to continue to um, image him and glorify him. God created a good creation fueled by his gracious provision. That's the equilibrium that we begin from. If you remember in school learning about stories and how to write stories, um, you begin with an equilibrium and then something happens to upset the equilibrium and then the rest of the story is uh, bringing a new uh, equilibrium. That's what, that's what pride is in this case. Pride enters the creation and brings about spiritual death to Satan and the demons as well, and humanity, as he tempts them to pride, to be tempted by the thought of being like God. So as we think about pride, we want to think about it as thinking or acting independently of God in the power of one's own unaided creaturely wisdom and power. Any wisdom or power that we obtain outside of the grace of God leads us to pride, which is rebellion against God. So what is the opposite of pride? humility. If, uh, if pride is that which kills, then we could deduce that humility is that which is life-giving. If 
if creaturely pride is what kills, then humility is the attribute that promotes life. This represents a significant paradigm shift for me that reminds me a bit of seeing the, the sovereignty of God in, in all things for the first time. I remember that point in my walk where you know the, the sovereignty of God is presented to me and then it just kind of opened my eyes up and then you see it all over the pages of scripture. This was kind of similar for me. In thinking on this a bit, it struck me that God's sovereignty is something that we all like to talk about, certainly in Reformed circles. It's a comfort to us to think of God being a big God. He is in control of all things. He predestines and elects unto salvation. Nothing and no one thwarts God's plans. It's a comfort, and it is a comfort, and we rest in it. But it is striking to me that we don't hear all that much about humility being taught, generally speaking. And why is that? As I was thinking, does it have something to do with we don't like to think about that because of the pridefulness of our flesh? I'm comforted that God is infinitely high and that he is completely sovereign. However, I don't really want to have to embrace the thought that I'm infinitely low and infinitely dependent upon him. Maybe we can give, maybe we give lip service to those things, but are we really grabbing a hold of this? And I think that we, at least me, and pretty sure it's we, are tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are tempted to think that we are bringing something really special to the activity of God's mission in glorifying himself. To really embrace the concept that God is all necessarily means, how much am I? I'm nothing. I'm a spiritual pauper. I'm destitute. All that I receive must be received by the grace and the mercy of God because I can't do anything to earn it. We would do well to think on this. We would do well to see humility as a foundational, um, as foundational to life and fellowship with God. Humility is foundational to faith. You know, sola fide, that's one of the five solas. But without humility, there can be no faith. Humility precedes faith. Humility precedes reverential fear of God. Humility precedes all the signs of spiritual life. And we would do well to explore this concept with the same vigor that we do other concepts, such as the sovereignty of God. To see God as infinitely big is good, but the problem is when we think we have a pocket full of stuff that we're working from, we need to understand that my pockets are empty. The understanding of I am nothing and that he is all is life-changing. Will your pride take a hit? Absolutely, but that's the point. Humility is rooted in dependence upon God's gracious provision for all things that pertain to life. Being tied to the grace of God, there's a starting point of lowliness before God. I was talking to Thomas the other day and we were discussing how pride is like a funhouse mirror that distorts reality. Humility accomplishes the opposite and it reveals the true reality of our condition. Humility is the disposition toward God that provides an accurate representation of my condition. Apart from the grace of God to give me life and to sustain me, I'm without hope. Apart from God, I'm a dead man. I have no good in me and there's nothing in me that's worthy of life. Again, the highest mission of man is to image the nature of God in creation to the glory of God. 
Humility is the dependence upon the grace of God to actually live according to this highest mission. Humility understands the mission and lives dependent upon God and his grace to do it. And how do we define grace? This is audience participation portion. Unmerited favor, yeah. Um, so unmerited, this, is mean, this means it's not tied to anything that we have done or that we, so we, it's nothing that we've earned. To know that you need grace is to know that you are undeserving of receiving anything from God on the basis of your own merit. It's the understanding that God is all and I'm lowly and destitute. To be truly humble is to know that I'm completely and utterly dependent upon the charity of God if I am to have eternal life. This is the understanding that Jesus is speaking to at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the worldview and the starting point of those who will see the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. These are all markers of humility, of life. There's a lowliness before God. We don't approach God with a resume of things that I've done. Our only approach to God is like that of the tax collector who was able to see the reality of the situation and he called out for mercy. He couldn't even lift his eyes up toward heaven. He just cried out to, to God for mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee was thanking God for how good he was for him. He was looking at the world through that funhouse mirror. Not only does humility impact your disposition toward God, but it also affects your desire for God. We'll talk more about this next week, but a marker of humility, of spiritual life, is that at the core of your being, your desire is for God and for the things of God. You have an affectional affinity for God and His mission. You desire to walk in the light rather than the darkness. Of course, over the course of your walk with God, this desire gains definition and becomes an informed desire as you're learning more and more about what this looks like to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. But the desire for God is there when humility exists. I'm going for alliteration here. So the, uh, the next... Humility impacts the disposition of man toward God as well as his desire in regard to God. Next, humility delights in God. There is satisfaction, there is fulfillment, there is pleasure and rest in God who is all. Humility is clear, is the clear reality that God is everything and I'm nothing. I, I don't even have the ability to get anything that's of any value. I'm the equivalent of that lame beggar who is utterly destitute and completely reliant upon the charity of God for life. There's no life apart from God. And to understand this, this is what leads us to cling to him. Knowing that he is all and I'm nothing, this is what leads us to go to him, to seek out his grace. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. To receive mercy and to find grace. This is descriptive of utter dependence upon God for life. And lastly, there is a devotion to God. In the world today, there is a definition of love that divorces love and holiness. Um, scripture doesn't do this. When we talk about love as the Bible does, it's always in connection to holiness. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love is the fulfillment of holiness. 
This love that we have for God, which begins with this genuine humility, is a love that submits to him in lowliness, desire, delight, and dependence. When you know that you're nothing, there is a willing submission to the one who's all. To continue to think on humility, remember a few minutes ago when we went through the catechism questions, and the third one was, why did God make you in all things? And the answer was, for his own glory. This is the highest thing that we can do as created beings, is to bring glory to our creator. And we do this through dependence upon him to give us what we need to do this. Prefall man existed in fellowship with God and one another because sin had not yet entered the creation and man depended on God for all things. There was nothing to sever this relationship or this relational fellowship with God. God was supplying man everything to carry out his highest mission. However, in that moment when man acted independently from God, unaided by God, to do something other than the mission of God to glorify himself in and through the creation, that is the moment in which sin entered creation through pride. This pride, now active for the first time, killed mankind and completely severed the relationship to God. Pride defines fallen humanity, making it impossible for there to be relational fellowship with God. Fallen man cannot live out the mission of God because pride is reigning at the core of his being. So what is pride's mission? If pride had a mission statement, what would it be? To glorify one's self. That, that's what I've got. Um, that's good. Uh, it's to glorify me. Self-exaltation. Um, there are many ways we go about doing this, but in the end, the mission of pride is to glorify self. There can, uh, can there be any relational fellowship with God if my aim, if my mission is self-exaltation, while his aim is his own glory? No, we've got different missions. There are at there, we're actually working against one another. There is enmity between us because there are competing missions. Rather than seeing God as the only one who deserves glory, we act as though we are competing with him as we try to be like him and to build a silly little throne to sit on as we rule over our silly little kingdom that we think that we have. Pride says, if God is receiving glory, then that means I'm not. Pride is active in trying to rob God of his glory. We rob God of his glory when we say that creation did not come into being the way that he says that he created it, when we in our unaided human wisdom decide that creation wasn't created but is rather the result of random interactions of molecules that came out of nowhere, we are robbing God of his glory. We rob God of his glory when we try to diminish him in actual or functional atheism. When we deny his existence, we deny his glory. When we deny his authority to define what is good and what is evil, and his authority to command his creatures to glorify him in doing what's good, we rob him of his glory. Pride says, I can decide for myself how I should live and what I should spend my time doing. I can pursue this or that. I can use or abuse all of God's creation in order to get glory for myself. This is pride. And in the end of pride is death. The pride of fallen humanity is an environment which is hostile to God's mission, thereby making relationship with God impossible. And we'll get into more of this next week. But there are relational virtues 
that God graciously gives to man, which facilitate a growing relational fellowship to God. But the prideful heart is an environment which these um, graces of God or these virtues cannot exist. As we've said, humility is the prerequisite. Humility must precede all other things. We must depend on God for all things pertaining to life so that we can live out our highest purpose. Humility is foundational to the Christian life. It's the lifeblood of eternal life. Humility is the optimal environment for these graces of God to exist and to move and to motivate us to an intensifying pursuit of Him. As long as pride is at the center of your being, all you can do and all you will do and all you want to do is live to exalt yourself, to do what's right in your own eyes. But when a heart of humility is put in its place and the prideful heart is removed, your mission is new and relational fellowship now exists. But on the other hand, humility brings about a change in not only our identity before God, but also a change in our mission. It's like <clears throat> the change in identity that happens when one is drafted or enlists in the military service. My mission as a civilian is over. It's insignificant. It doesn't matter anymore because I am now a soldier and my mission is given to me by my superior. This brings us to the next part of the lesson. We've looked at what I am, uh, what I'm persuaded of is the pre-fall condition or the nature of uh, dependence upon God for life. God's good and perfect creature or creation was marked by humility. The creature living unto God, imaging God to the glory of God by the very life received from God. There was a clear understanding of God as the creator and self as being the created being. Pride kills everything. The pride of Satan killed him. It killed the demons. It killed humanity in our federal head, Adam. All of humanity is born into this pride cut off from saving grace. It's the central defining attribute of fallen man. We were talking the other night about babies and how hard it is sometimes to believe that they are totally depraved and dead in sin just like the rest of humanity. But this is only hard because they're so small and limited in their ability to express it. The older they get, the more tools they've got in their tool belt, and then it's not so hard to believe anymore, is it? <laughs> it's this pride that kills, and we've also discussed how humility is life. The next question is, how can prideful human beings who are dead in trespasses and sin be made alive? And it's the life of Christ. We know that we have life in Christ, but have we thought much about what that life that we have consists of? What is it specifically about the life of Christ that gives life to mankind? Why was it necessary that he come to earth and be born and live 30-something years here and then die on the cross to be raised three days later to ascend to the right hand of the Father? What does it mean to say that Jesus lived a perfect life? Was it, was it just that he didn't sin? That's certainly part of it. But there's much more to it, I think, than just not sinning. It is it's that he fulfilled a life of total dependence upon God for all things pertaining to life. He lived out all the deeds in complete, perf in complete perfection. His disposition toward God was one of lowliness. His desire was for God. His delight was in God. He depended on God to supply all the things necessary for the mission, for the mission that he was on to reveal the nature and the character of God, and he was devoted completely 
to God. To think of the life of Christ as a life in which he didn't sin is somewhat flat. He submitted to the Father. He desired the will of the Father rather than his own. His delight was in the will of the Father. He loved the Father. He desired the glory of the Father and not his own glory. He says in John 8 verse 50, Yet I do not seek my own glory. His entire existence is a recognition of God being all. The mission of Christ was completely defined by being on the right mission, the mission of the Father. Humility is, is mission-specific. He says in John 6, verse 38, that he came down from heaven to accomplish the will of the Father rather than his own will. The mission of his life was completely aligned with the mission of the Father. And in John 4, verse 34, we see that his very food was to do the will of the Father rather than his own will. So I want us to look at this passage. I see this passage as a clear description of life unto God. Do you remember what we saw in the fall of Satan uh, and the fall in the Garden of Eden? Satan said, I will make myself like the Most High. And Eve was tempted with, you will be like God. So what's the ultimate thing there? They're seeking or what appealed to them was equality with God. I will be like God. I will ascend to be like the Most High. That's equality with God. Theologians have done a lot of thought on this passage and have written a lot on it, and I think it helps to maybe just look at simply what it says. And as we, whereas Satan desired equality with God, I will make myself like the Most High, and he fell in pride to spiritual death, whereas Adam and Eve, who were tempted to desire equality with God, you will be like God in the knowledge of good and evil. They fell in pride to spiritual death. Jesus, although existing in the form, the very likeness of God, being God himself, he did not, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's possible that I'm oversimplifying it, but it's also possible that others have overcomplicated it. Even though Jesus, as the uncreated second person of the Trinity, is God himself, not even he regarded equality with God a thing to be grasped. How much less so should we, or who are created being like an angel or human, strive to be equal with God? Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded in living out humility in not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the life that we lack apart from him. The rest of the passage provides details to fill out what it means not to regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He took on the form of a slave. He humbled himself to obedience to the will of the Father. If you'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying to his Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He was obedient to the will and the mission of the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Adam failed in regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus never counted equality with God a thing to be grasped. He lived out perfect humility, a perfect lowliness, a perfect delight in the Father, a perfect dependence, and a perfect devotion for the Father. It wasn't just a sinless life, but it was a life that was dependent upon God to supply all things pertaining to life. What would have happened if Jesus would have ventured outside of the will of the Father at any point? It wouldn't have been humility. That would have been an act of independence, a rebellion against the Father. It would have been pride. 
but he did not re- regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's where I try to get a little fancy with my uh, presentation here. So we, we speak of the, uh, the life of Christ. That's what we're talking about, a life of humility, which does not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. A life that wouldn't dream of going outside of the light of God's will to find something that you might think you need or something that you think might provide you with some level of entertainment, pleasure, security, or provision. This is the will of God that Jesus would redeem humanity immediately after the fall of man in Genesis 3. By Genesis 3.15, God is promising the redemption in a future seed of the woman. Salvation is only in Christ. He is the only way that we can have this life. And apart from him, there's only death. When Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he cuts right to the central issue for, for mankind. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again is to be born from above or born of the Spirit. He's talking about regeneration. Man's central issue is that he is dead in his trespasses and sin, being ruled by the pride that killed Satan and the demons and humanity. The pride that has a different mission than the mission of God to glorify himself. Pride is on a mission of self-exaltation. But you must be made new. You must be born again and receive a new heart of humility. When, uh, when regeneration occurs, the pride-filled heart of stone that we're all born with is taken away and replaced with a heart of flesh that's characterized by the humility of Christ. That's what he was accomplishing on our behalf, is, is a life of humility that we lacked. There is now spiritual life in man, and it comes only in Christ. So here are some pictures that uh, represent what we've discussed to this point, and then we'll close for the day. Here in the first picture, we have man prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden. He's characterized by this heart of humility. There is a dependence upon God for all things pertaining to life. But when tempted to regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, man listened to Satan's voice and sought after a wisdom that came from a source other than God. Mankind looked outside of God's gracious provision and took of the fruit and ate it. This resulted in immediate spiritual death. The poison of pride killed the whole man and renders him utterly and completely separated from God. He is unable to be in fellowship with God because of his pride-filled heart that desires to exalt self rather than the glory of God. This is the reality of our situation. We are all born into the situation on the right. Every part of us is against God. We are at enmity with God in our heart as we desire to be our own God and to make our own determinations of right and wrong. We desire the glory that comes from men rather than the glory of God. This is what's going on at the inner man level. The pride-filled heart desires self-exaltation while the heart of humility desires to live on mission to the glory of God. It's an issue of the desires that are being produced. The dead heart produces desires to lift up self while the desire of the humble heart is to glorify God. Our minds can't think or reason rightly in regard to spiritual things because there is no humility. There is no life in us. Without a heart of humility, which is figuratively pumping this lifeblood of dependence upon God's grace, um, without that, faith and a reverent fear of God cannot be received. 
So there can be no sober-minded thinking about God without humility. And lastly, pride has had its complete work in us, and we are completely stained and defiled by sin. Every part of us is characterized by pride, and the mission of pride is self-exaltation in competition with God. Pride is that funhouse mirror that deceives us and considers equality with God a thing to be grasped. So at the moment one is regenerated, they're given a new heart of humility. So this is uh, shown by this red heart. You know, on the other slide, for the fallen man, it was a black heart, black mind, black, everything's defiled and stained by sin. So this new heart that we've been given is a heart of flesh that's spoken of in Scripture. This is a heart that is alive to God. There is no mixture here. The heart is without pride. What God has given to us is not deficient in any way. This is a new identity and this is the holy environment in which the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. But have you ever wondered why you have thoughts that don't agree with the mission of God? And what about your actions? Are you always doing that which is on mission for God now that you are a believer? What we've been talking about today relates to our position before God in Christ. This new heart is our positional holiness before God. It's what Christ accomplished on our behalf. It's what drives us. Once we've been made new, we've received this new heart, this humble heart. It's what drives us in sanctification as the only environment in which sanctifying grace, the sanctifying grace of God, may be received. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit is at work within the believer to bring our thoughts and our conduct into agreement with our position in Christ. In regeneration, you're given a new identity that's characterized by the humility of the life of Christ. However, though your inner man, your heart is new, your mind and your flesh have not been immediately redeemed as your heart was. So they, are, they still remain stained by sin and they must be trained to think and to act in accordance with the humility that now rules in your heart. We have Romans 12 verse 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The mind is not made new all at once the way your inner man is. We must be renewed to think right thoughts about God and self. The pattern of prideful thinking must be broken and truth must be established in us. Romans 8.13, For if you live to the flesh, you will die, but if, you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the mortification of the, of the flesh that the Spirit empowers. This is a Spirit-empowered work by which the muscle memory to sin, uh, which is independence from God, is broken, and new habits of conduct are established which agree with the mission of God to walk humbly before Him and to glorify Him, imaging Him in the world in a way that we are completely dependent upon Him for all things as we've, as we've spoken to earlier. So our sanctification is the topic I'm planning for next week. But I didn't want to not talk about that part right there. I didn't want to leave anybody feeling anxious because as they consider their, as we consider our own lives, we see those inconsistencies. We see, well, I'm new. I'm made new. God didn't do anything deficient. I've been given this new heart of humility. But yet, why do I think the things I do? Why do I act the way I do? We're being sanctified. And so I didn't want to leave anybody anxious thinking that I was presenting in any way that we would be 
all of a sudden you're perfect. You're thinking right thoughts. You're doing right things. There's a process that we're taking on, and we'll talk about that next week. Regeneration is the instantaneous um, removal of the old uh, dead heart and the putting in the new heart. The one who's born again is, a, is alive to God with a heart of humility that desires God and is a willing servant in the mission of God. You don't get any more saved or any more accepted by the Father than you are at the very moment that you've been born again into the humility of Christ. However, our thoughts and our conduct must be brought into conformity with Christ through uh, certain God-ordained means, and that requires that first thing to happen, and that's we have to be born again. We have to have that new heart of humility for any of the rest of it to happen. So here are our takeaways. Um, and I'm going to finish before one, so we're going to go. I'm going to get this slide done in less than three minutes. <laughs> the uh, the creature is dependent upon the Creator for freedom to live as He ought to the glory of God. So that was one of our first points. The creature is dependent upon God. That's that's humility. Um, we must recognize that we depend on our Creator if we are to live as we ought, uh, if we are to live unto God. The pride which killed Satan and the demons also killed humanity in the garden, making dependence upon God impossible. The heart of pride can only work to self-exaltation. Self I think I've stumbled over that about eight times in a row. Mm -hmm. Humility is the essence of life. Dependence upon God for all things pertaining to the mission of God to glorify himself. There is a complete dependence upon God to supply everything that we need in order to image Him rightly and to glorify Him. Christ lived out humility perfectly as He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He died as our substitute so that we would live in union with Him. So are there any... I guess I, I didn't look up enough or I didn't see any hands or nobody threw anything at me so I didn't stop, but... Anybody have any clarifying questions? Was it something I could explain better or um, just elaborate on a little bit more in the... Yes, ma'am. I promise not to do this, but I tend to break my promises because I have a fallen nature. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you clarify... I think we all understand, but for the tape's sake, could you clarify what you mean by heart? The inner man. The just inner the... Yeah, the... the the part that identifies you, like I'm identified by the innermost part of my being, and that's what I—that's what I mean by the heart, is that our our inner man has been made new. That, like our thinking, what we call right and wrong. Well, our thinking must be brought into conformity. So that's something that takes place over time, um, as well as our conduct. You know, our think, our conduct comes from our thinking, and so like right whenever one becomes saved it's a you know there's a measure of faith that we've exercised to believe that, that you know God regenerates and regeneration comes first and then he also grants to us and we'll talk about this more next week but there's a granting of faith and there's a granting of reverential fear and it's a, it's a measure of it and so we exercise that measure of faith that God's given to us to believe what little we know about him and then that heart of humility is churning out desires. We desire more of, of what God has revealed. And so there's a, a natural draw for the believer 
to the word of God because that's, you know, like Peter says, you know, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. So these are the words of life. And so we want to go to these words, these inspired words of God. And then it's through this that the Holy Spirit is at work to renew our minds, renew our thinking, to get rid of those habits of thought that we have spent decades, you know, possibly developing that are prideful, that are all, how can I exalt myself? And rather, now we need to believe the truth and the, the truth will transform our minds and then also our actions. So it's the, the transformation of our minds, uh, the renewal of our minds, the transformation of our conduct, that's all a part of the sanctification. So today we were primarily just talking about the regeneration, which is the, that recreation of the inner man. All right, well, let us pray, and then I'll be done. Father, we are so grateful for this church, this, uh, this group of saints that you have assembled here today. We thank you for what we have been taught by uh, David out of the book of James. I'm thankful that we know that the the trials that we do face and you know we we know that we face these trials but it's such a comfort to know that they're not without purpose that you have a, an intended purpose in these things and they are to produce valuable endurance and steadfastness so that we would be made complete and mature in our faith these trials reveal to us if we're acting faithfully or if we're acting yeah, from our flesh. So, Lord, we're thankful that these uh, hard things that we encounter, whether it be um, something we might consider to be a big trial or something that we might consider to be something relatively minor or something that's expensive or uh, something that relationally hurts or whatever the, the case may be, that we can we can be joyful in that because we know that you are graciously dealing with us in such a way to bring about our maturity of faith, that we would um, image you rightly in this world. And so, Lord, I pray that what we've talked about in this last hour, um, I pray that you would just use it. Uh, the, the parts that were from me that aren't true or, or whatever I might have misspoken, I pray that you would uh, let those things just not sit, uh, that they would just... Uh, they would pass on by. But I pray those things that are true and good and right and uh, useful for, for us as we are being uh, matured to a maturity of faith, I pray that you would use those things, that your spirit would testify to the truthfulness of those things and encourage us in them. And I do pray that you would be at work in us to, to drive us into your word, which is where our minds will be renewed. Uh, Lord, we all have this, uh, these patterns of thought, these patterns of behavior that are like well-worn paths. And I pray that by your grace, you would teach us uh, to, to walk by faith, uh, to walk in humility, to walk in such a way where we know I bring nothing to this. I'm completely dependent upon the grace of my Father to provide all that I would need to walk in a way that honors Him and glorifies Him. I bring nothing to this. I can't point to anything in my own life. 
you say even the rocks would cry out if if we didn't so lord it's a it's a wonderful grace to us that you choose to use us to glorify you and we pray that you would and we're thankful for this day and we're thankful for the time that we've spent and i pray that as we go on from here you would protect us on the road as we travel to wherever we're going and uh, it's in christ's name we pray amen